This morning we're going to be studying um, three chapters in Isaiah, so we're going to jump right in pretty quickly here. But turn with me to Isaiah 30 chapters, or Isaiah chapters 30 to 32. We'll just open our Bibles right at the beginning here and get ready to go. Isaiah chapters 30 through 32. You do not have sermon notes this morning due to an uprising of our office machines, but um, we are going to discipline them appropriately and get that working for next week. But Isaiah 30 through 32, if you don't have a Bible, there's a black one underneath the seat somewhere around you. You're welcome to take that. We'd love for you to be reading God's Word with us this morning so you know that this is God's Word and not Ron's Word. And so please follow along. If you don't have a Bible, please take that one home. We want you to have one. It is um, that important. So I need to, to confess a problem this morning. I love the chicken bake at Costco. Amen. Anyone else love the chicken bake at Costco? Yeah, it is, it is delicious. You, you get the, the Caesar in there and the chicken and the Alfredo sauce. However, every time I eat one, about two hours later, I have a migraine headache that wipes me out the rest of the day. Jacqueline too? Yeah. And so this is a dilemma because I love the chicken bake. And so every now and then, every you know six months or so, I go to Costco and I order the chicken bake, fully knowing what will happen. But it is that good, right? I am not, I'm not getting any kickbacks from chicken bakes at Costco or anything like that. But I know what might happen and, and I'm in line and I'm rationalizing this. Do I get the hot dog or, or do I get the chicken bake? Yes. And, and I think, well, you know what? Maybe it'll be different this time. Maybe, maybe they've changed the recipe. Eat them more often. <laughs> this is going to be a chicken bake support group by the end of today. <laughs> and, and maybe my body has acclimated to it. And, and maybe, maybe, and I get it. And two hours later, I'm, I'm just out with a migraine. No lights, no sound, anything else. You would think I would learn my lesson, right? No, it's been about six months, so I'm going to get a chicken bake here pretty soon and try it. No. <laughs> we laugh about that, but don't we all have things like that? That we just go back to, even though we know they may not be the best for us, even though we know that the effect that they'll have on us. This morning, we want to take that idea and talk about something far more serious than silly chicken bakes at Costco. And that's the issue of sin and repetitive sin that we just can't seem to escape. Sin that we keep going back to, knowing that it's sin, knowing that this is wrong, but something drives us to do it. You know, with the chicken bake, maybe it's how good it is to me and and my desire for that taste. Uh, I I don't know what else would drive you to the chicken bake, but with sins, why, why do we go? And I want to start with a question, the same question I asked our community group this week. Why do we go back to sins over and over and over again? What do you think? What are some of the reasons? Familiarity. Familiarity. Okay. It's part of our pattern. Temporary pleasure. pleasure. It looks good. The chicken bake tastes good while I'm eating it. It, It's it's the stuff later that that isn't so good. But temporary pleasure. Sin a lot of times brings temporary pleasure. I'm not going to lie about it and say sin's no fun. But the the results are, are devastating. Why else? Remind me of my need for Christ. So it's the old man that needs Christ desperately. 
continually. Why do we keep going back to these things? Selfish nature. Thank you. Because I think that's a lot of it. And we see that with kids, right? With kids, they'll look you in the eye and say, I don't like that, so I'm not going to do that. Now, as adults, we, we, we are much more refined and sophisticated, and we would never say that. We just do what we want. And we defy God. There's all kinds of reasons we keep going back like a dog to its vomit. And we keep sinning and sinning and sinning. Maybe it's the issue of anger. And we're struggling with overcoming anger. And, and it keeps rearing its head when circumstances come up. Maybe it's a critical spirit. And we're just in a habit of criticizing. Maybe it's gossip and we can't get past that. Maybe it's lust. And and we're scared to death to turn on the computer screen because we don't know if we have enough self-control. Maybe it's pride or or apathy. Or apathy at work, which is stealing from your, your boss. All kinds of repetitive sins. We could go on and on and on. But we struggle with these because we're sinners, but that does not excuse them. This morning as we come to Isaiah, we, we come to an issue that I'm just going to be up front, we've already seen two or three times in Isaiah. And it happens over and over and over again. Because the, the children of Israel, in this case Judah, the southern kingdom, are no different from us. They're just as human as we are. And they kept doing the same stupid things, just like we do. And they were in this cycle where they'd sin and rebel against God and God would judge them and they would say, God, we love you. Save us. We'll never leave you. He would save them and it would start all over again. And we do the same thing. And so we come today, and even though the text doesn't necessarily explicitly say this is about repetitive sins, I want to read it in light of this is the third time that we've seen this issue. This is many more times that we've seen the trust issue. See, we're in this section still on trusting God and, and whereas we can say that virtually all sin goes back to the issue of pride, I would say that one of the ways pride expresses itself is a lack of trust in God. It's a lack of trust in God. Because pride as its heart, as it, at its heart says, I know more than anyone else. I am better than anyone else. I am above anyone else. Which means I don't trust God. I trust me. And so we come to understanding that almost all of our sins are trust issues. I don't trust God's Word when He says not to do this. I don't trust God's plan for my life. I don't trust, I don't trust, I don't trust. And so we sin and trust our ways rather than God's. The assertion I want to make this morning that I think you'll see in the text. Sin is a trust issue. Sin is a trust issue. And trust is a sin issue. And so not only, I think we could all agree, yeah, all my sin goes back to not trusting God, but I want to go a step further and say, when we don't trust God, that is sin. That's a sin issue in every area of life. And when we start to explore that, now we're meddling a little bit. Do we really trust God in every area of life? And Isaiah is going to go there. A little bit of background Do you remember when the northern kingdom and Syria got together and they were worried about Assyria coming and killing them? They came down and said, make an alliance with us, right? This is all about alliances, which you're probably tired of hearing about. And and they should be tired of hearing about. And and instead of of the southern kingdom, King Ahaz, allying with them, he says, no, I'd rather ally with Assyria. There's a good plan. 
And, and so he, he allies with the beast and then wonders why they turn on him eventually. And God, through Isaiah, judges and says, this was wrong. You did not trust me. We saw a little bit ago where in, in the siege and looking forward to, or looking toward the siege and Assyria starting to come in, one of the temptations was, let's go make an alliance with Babylon to the east. They're an up-and-coming power. Maybe they'll help us fight Assyria. And God, through Isaiah, says, don't do that. Stupid. Don't do it. Trust me. Don't trust Babylon. And for now, they didn't. But we'll see later in the book that that became an issue as well. Well, in this case, we now have a third time that they're trying to make an alliance with somebody. They just don't learn. Because they are so afraid of what is happening and they don't believe God can take care of them. That's the ultimate issue here. They don't trust God and believe God can take care of them. So now they're thinking, oh, Egypt is to the south of us. They're pretty big. Now they're already waning as a, as a kingdom at this point. But they're, they're okay. Let's ally with them and they can be our protection and cover us. And we'll tell Assyria, you attack us, you attack Egypt, bad things happen. And that's where we come into the text today. It's probably about a year before Assyria takes out most of Judah and is on the door of Jerusalem. And so Isaiah is preparing them for this. But we see again the sin of not trusting happens over and over and over again. We're going to look at 30, 31, and 32. And just to give you a a landscape of where we're going, we're going to spend most of our time on chapter 30 today. That's where I I want to really... um, Zoom in on, and then we'll summarize chapters 31 and 32. It's the nature of Isaiah. This is what we have to do is is summarize some things. Please read those during the week and take the context of what we've talked about on Sunday and, and read the rest of the passages. Isaiah chapter 30, verse 1. Ah, stubborn children. You know it's going to be a good chapter when it starts that way. Ah, stubborn children, declares the Lord, who carry out a plan but not mine and who make an alliance, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin. Who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. So we see the first two verses, the setup of what's going on here and what I just talked about. Point number one, if you had notes... You have paper and pen, but we'll still put them on the screen. Point number one, once again, our trust should be in God alone. And anything less is sin and foolishness. It's a long sentence, but it really tries to summarize. I was trying to summarize this chapter. Once again, our trust should be in God alone. And anything less is sin and foolishness. We're going to see four different sections in this chapter. One is man's plans and what that looks like with Egypt. Two is the result of that. Three is the plans God would have had for them or the result of trusting in God. Please come back to God. Four is the actual plans that God had for them. And so God's trying to show them you should have trusted in me. So these first seven verses are really talking that Egypt won't be any help. Don't be foolish. Don't do this again. They're not going to be any help. So we have the opening, Ah, stubborn children. And in stubbornness, we see that Isaiah is very intentionally bringing up that this is a repetitive issue. This is one that they won't give in on. This is one that keeps coming up. Ah, stubborn children, declares the Lord. Some of your translations say obstinate. 
That's a good word for it as well. It's people that insist on their own way. They do the same thing over and over. They continue in sin. And I'm so glad that's never us. But it is. Anthony of Padua, a preacher in medieval church. You probably wonder where some of these quotes come from. This was for AJ, even though he's not in here. The hedgehog is the obstinate sinner. Covered all over with the prickles of sin. If you endeavor to convince him of the sin he has committed, he immediately rolls himself up and hides by excusing his fault. And that's the picture of this stubborn, obstinate sinner. I'm going to do this over and over, and every time I'm I'm confronted with it, I'm going to curl up and I'm going to excuse it away. Because it's okay. Ah, stubborn children, declares the Lord. Then we get to what did they do? And, and it's, it's multiple things there. It's, it's, wow. First thing he says, who carry out a plan, but not mine. Who make an alliance, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin. Who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction, to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh, and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. See, three different sins there just, just right off the top. The first is they followed their own ideas and solution rather than God's. This wasn't God's plan. This was theirs. They sought their wise men. They sought their counsel and said, this is the best way. And they followed their own ideas. The second is closely related. They didn't act on divine prompting. They didn't act on divine prompting. It was not spirit-led who made an alliance, but not of my spirit. In fact, in in verse 2, they didn't even ask. Didn't even ask. Who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction. It's interesting. the, the, The wording there has this idea of, and my mouth they have not asked. And it's not the way we say it, but the mouth was a, a, a place where God could have spoken into this, that God could have said, this is what you should do. And it's, so it's a symbol of his wisdom, his direction. My mouth you didn't ask. And so the idea is that if they had asked, he would have spoken. He would have said, don't do this or do this. I'm convicted by this. How many times do we carry out plans without even asking? You know, a test of this is your prayer life. How many times do we take our decisions that we're going to make that day and actually stop and pray about them before we make them? Or do we usually pray at the end or when it's a really tough decision? And, and this is saying, this is, this is a whole picture here. They didn't ask for my direction. They didn't seek my plan. They didn't ask the Spirit to lead them. You know, God may very well have used Egypt. The issue here isn't that going to Egypt was necessarily wrong. That might have been God's plan. God often used secular countries. He was using Assyria to judge the northern kingdom and to judge the southern kingdom. The issue here is they didn't ask. And that wasn't at God's prompting. So they assumed that their way was best. When we think of decisions we have to make, of things that we face each day, do we at least stop and genuinely pray? And I use the word genuinely on purpose. It's not just as we're on the church, help me have a good day, God. 
But do we do battle in prayer and say, God, I'm struggling with decision about which job I should take. Or I'm struggling with this decision about what my kids should be involved in. I'm struggling with this. Or, or even a decision we're not struggling with. Do we consciously seek God's input? Or do we only want input when we want it? See, this is an issue of who do we trust. This is an issue of pride. Do I trust God? When I'm coming home from work, do I say, God, show me how to be the best dad I can be. Show me how I can be the best husband I can be. When I come into the office, do I start by saying, God, show me how I can minister today. Show me who needs their pastor today. Consciously seeking God and making prayer a priority. Remember Joshua 9 when we studied Joshua? And they had some successes, some failures, and then the Gibeonites come. And they look like they're, they're from far away and they have old stale bread and, and chewed up clothes. And they come and they're actually in the path of the destruction. And they make this alliance with Israel that was not of God. And in Joshua, it says, So the men took some of their provisions but did not ask counsel from the Lord. Do you think of prayer as just a side thing, something we do before dinner, or as an essential part of seeking God? Next Sunday, we're going to have a prayer Sunday. And we do these once a quarter where we cancel Sunday school. It's that important to pray together. We cancel Sunday school and we meet in different rooms and we pray. And this is coming at the end of praying 31 days through October and praying for the election coming up. And this will be right before the election. My hope and my prayer is that those rooms are packed because we are willing to seek God as a congregation. That we are willing to ask His direction and ask His plan rather than view prayer as a superfluous time to gossip. They followed their own ideas and solution rather than God's. They didn't act on divine prompting. They didn't even ask for divine prompting. And finally, the third is the big picture. They trusted man and other things for protection rather than God. They trusted man and other things for protection rather than God. In verse 2, who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction, to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh, to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. They wanted to be under their tree and get the shade from their tree and get the protection, the covering from them. In fact, even the word for alliance that was used in verse 1 is this idea of a protective covering, a blanket that's put over somebody. They were looking for protection against a foe they could not defeat, and they ignored the only one that could. Probably was referred to last week what A.J. talked about in In chapter 28, 14, and 15, Therefore hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers who rule this people in Jerusalem, because you have said, We have made a covenant with death, and with Sheol we have an agreement. When the overwhelming whip passes through, it will not come to us, for we have made lies our refuge, and in falsehood we have taken shelter. And it's probably referring to this alliance with Egypt. They thought they had it made. They thought they had it covered. Verses go on in verse 3. Who set out to go down to Egypt. Therefore shall the protection of Pharaoh turn to your shame. This is the results of this choice. 
and the shelter in the shadow of Egypt to your humiliation. For though his officials are at Zon and his envoys reach Hanes, and those are just two cities in the, the realm of Egypt, one a little more north than the other, everyone comes to shame through a people that cannot profit them, that brings neither help nor profit, but shame and disgrace. And he's calling them out saying, this is going to lead to shame for you because you're trusting in the wrong thing. I mean, imagine this and and try to get a a word picture for this. Let's say I'm drowning in a pool and I need help and I call for help and you throw me one of the giant rocks that are out there. Number one, I have some ideas of what you think about me. But number two, that doesn't save me. What does that do? It drowns me. And so if if I'm at this rock and I'm my head's above water, I'm like, this rock is saving me. What do you think of me? I'm a fool. It's shameful. I'm being stupid. That's what he's talking about with shame here. It's this idea not just of embarrassment, but of disgrace, of foolishness. How could you? He says you will reap shame from your misplaced hope. See, hope, and we've said hope is a confident expectation. That's the definition we have of our hope. Hope only is valid depending on what it's placed in. My hope in that rock to save me from, from drowning, I can have all the confident expectation I want, and it's foolish because that rock has no ability to save me. That's what Isaiah is saying about Egypt. They have no ability to save you, and you're putting all your hope in this. What do we hope in? What do we hope will give us the life that we want? What do we hope will make us happy? What do we hope will solve our our issues that we have? Everything else but God falls and can't give you eternal hope. And so this, this shame is a couple of things. One is because it can't save me, and so I'm disappointed, and I have to face those consequences. Number two, I look like a fool for trusting in it. One of the commentators said, well, of course it's shameful. Isaiah might have said, for from the feared killer, Assyria, they were seeking help from the proved killer, Egypt. It made no sense. Now Isaiah, in in a little bit of humor, I think here in verses 6 and 7, uses animals. He says, an oracle of the beasts of the Negev. So he's talking, the Negev is the desert down south of Judah, and it's the wilderness. It's where the children of Israel wandered for 40 years. And it, th- this place is desolate. For those that have been there, it is, you're lucky to see a plant of any sort. This is desolate. So it's a hard place to travel through. And, and I say it in 6 and 7, an oracle on the beasts of the Negev. Let me talk about the animals. Don't really care about the delegation you're sending down to Egypt. Let's talk about the animals. Through a land of trouble and anguish, from where come the lioness and the lion, the adder and the flying fiery serpent, they carry their riches on the backs of donkeys and their treasures on the humps of camels. To a people that cannot profit them, Egypt's help is worthless and empty. Therefore I have called her Rahab who sits still. And Isaiah here is saying, think of the poor animals. You're making them carry all this wealth because to get an alliance you had to pay dearly. You're making them carry all this gold and wealth down there through this desolate land for no reason. Because Egypt can't 
help you. Like I said, other sources are ultimately empty of help. Always. And that's a challenge for us to think of what weight do we put on people. Sometimes we put weight on our spouses to make us happy and meet all of our needs because that's what they should do, right? And that's a weight they can't bear because they happen to be a human being like you are and they happen to not be God. And we put these expectations on our spouses that are far, far beyond what they can bear and what they can do because we expect them to be God sometimes and to meet those needs and to make us happy and to be perfect. And anyone will wilt under that expectation. I don't care who you are. Because it's misplaced trust and misplaced hope. That's why when people go seek counseling for issues, I challenge you, always, always, always make sure counseling is from a Christian perspective. Because if it's not, it's temporary. It's putting a band-aid on an amputated limb. Because only God can provide help. Yes, they can have some, some nice answers and some point some things out, but ultimately, the issue of any issues we're having, the, the foundation of any issues we're happen, having, the foundation of any relational issues are, is self-centeredness. It's that I am on the throne and God is not. And so the answer must, if it's going to work and be effective, must always come back to the grace of Jesus Christ and the power of Jesus Christ in our lives. And if we don't go there, we have a band-aid. Man, this passage is huge. Who do we trust? What do we trust? Are we seeking God? He ends with just the Rahab who sits still. I've called her Rahab who sits still. Not talking about the, the... lady in Joshua. Rahab was a term that they often used for a chaos monster equivalent to Leviathan. And it was sometimes used of Egypt. And he's basically saying, you're trusting a toothless monster that's just going to eat you up. But it's just sitting there. and can't do anything. The verses go on to talk about the results of this. The rebellion of ignoring Yahweh's instructions is verses 8 through 17. We're still in, in point one. Um, like I said, that we're going to spend some time on this chapter. Let's read on. It says, okay, you want to know where this leads? Let me tell you where this leads. And now go, write it before them on a tablet and inscribe it on a book that it may be for a time to come a witness forever. For they are a rebellious people, lying children, children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord. And we get their heart there. They don't want to hear it. They're unwilling to hear what God says. Who say to the seers, do not see And to the prophets, do not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us smooth things. Prophesy illusions. Leave the way. Turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. Those verses send chills up your spine a little bit. Man, this is rebellion in full bloom. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to know about it. I know what you're going to say. Have we ever said that to somebody who's talking to us about sin in our lives? Just don't even talk to me about it. Nope. That's where they were at. So we see a, a rebellious attitude. They, they, they choose not to hear. They are a lying people that are false, that are not what they should be. They sit in church or their community group in Sunday school and listen and read the Bible, but they don't live it. Okay, maybe they didn't have church community groups or, or 
Sunday school, but you get the point. In verses 10 and 11, you see just a chilling way of, of denying God's word. Don't tell us what is right. Don't, do not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us smooth things, pleasant things. See, they didn't just want to silence the prophets. They wanted to change, change what they said. They wanted nice, fluffy rainbows coming out of the prophets' mouths instead of truth. And that would lead to disaster. Leave us unruffled. Don't, don't challenge us with God's Word. Don't disturb our lives. Don't say anything that would convict us. I am sad that the church in America often gives in to this. That many churches are not teaching the truth of God's Word and are not challenging and are not ruffling feathers because God's Word ruffles feathers. There are days this week where I was studying for this and I'm like, man, this is hitting me hard. And it's challenging me. That's what God's Word should be. That's what the Word of the prophets should be. I was watching a TV show the other day. I'm not going to tell you which one it is, but one of the activities they had on this show is the person in question had to have one of their closest friends come and sit for 15 minutes and critique them. And they weren't allowed to say anything back. And the the caveat was they had to be completely honest. And it was brutal watching this. Because close friends that had never said some of these things are sitting there saying, you're like this, and you annoy me like this, and you do this, and you do this. And I don't recommend going and doing that. It's not what I'm saying. But they said things that were never said before because we don't want to hear them. And we end friendships sometimes when someone's honest with us. Wouldn't we rather have the honesty? Wouldn't we rather have the truth of God's Word applied to our hearts and our lives? Their rebellious attitude didn't want it. We go on to see the results of that attitude in 12 through 14. Therefore, thus says the Holy One of Israel. I'm going to stop there for a minute. Holy One was introduced at the end of verse 11. And it's the first of, or this, is, this is one of four times that it's used right in this paragraph. If you remember when we talked about the names of God, we said pay attention when names of God are used because they mean something. They apply to the situation. And in this case, Isaiah keeps saying, Holy One, Holy One, Holy One. That's why we sang about holiness this morning. And, and we might say, well, what does Holy One have to do with listening to God and trusting God and seeking Him for direction? Here's the thing. Holiness is more than just God being really good or really pure. It's more than even God being perfectly good and perfectly pure. The idea of holiness is, is yes, it's morally set apart and righteously set apart in that way, but it's that He is set apart like no other. And so the idea of holiness is that there is no one like God. No one is God. No one else is holy. Now think about how that applies to trusting. This is really cool. I had never thought of holiness in this way until I was studying this week. If I'm choosing what to trust, do I want to trust the nations or the only one that is set apart that can help me? That's why they use the name Holy One. It's setting him apart from Egypt and from Babylon and from Assyria and from all these other places of hope and saying, this is the only trustworthy rock. 
And so he says, therefore, thus says the Holy One of Israel. And it's like the knife digging in a little bit. Because you despise this word, and catch this, and trust in oppression and perverseness and rely on them, therefore this iniquity will be to you like a breach in a high wall, bulging out and about to collapse, whose breaking comes suddenly in an instant. And he challenges them. You've not listened to God. You've despised His Word. You're trusting in oppression and perverseness. You're relying on them. Oh man, don't miss that. Don't miss that in election season. And and I'm not telling you who to vote for or who not to vote for, but man, those two things, oppression and perverseness, are rampant. And we, the, the, the lesson for us is we are not to rely on any of these people to save us. And I talked about this two weeks ago. None of the candidates are God. None of them are holy. Only God is. And as soon as we rely on any candidate to save us or save our country or to keep things the way we should be going, we've lost the Holy One. We've lost sight of the Holy One. Now, should we do our study? Should we vote? Yes, absolutely. That's part of loving others in the love God, love others. But we don't have to fret about it. Because we rely on the Holy One. He goes on and need to quickly go through this. Therefore, the iniquity will be to you like a breach in a high wall, bulging out and about to collapse, whose breaking comes suddenly in an instant. Trusting in self or other things is like collapsing on yourself. But then 14, and don't forget the potter. And its breaking is like that of a potter's vessel that is smashed so ruthlessly that among its fragments not a shard is found with which to take fire from the hearth or to dip water out of the cistern. We see the extent of their stubbornness in verse 15. For thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in case you've missed it, in returning and rest you shall be saved. Catch this. In the middle of their repeated offenses against God and repeated statements of not trusting Him, He's like, if you return to Me and rest, you will be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. Come back to Me. Trust Me. And the last phrase of 15, but you were unwilling. Guys, our God is a God of grace. He's a God that loves us dearly, but He's also just. And that love says if we come to Him and repent and return to Him and trust Him, His grace will cover the sin. But if we don't, the potter must act. And you said, no, we will flee upon our horses. Therefore, you'll flee away. You won't be saved. And we will ride upon swift steeds. Therefore, your pursuers will also be swift. A thousand shall flee flee at the threat of one, and a threat of five you shall flee till you are left like a flagstaff on the top of the mountain, like a signal on the hill. And that thousand fleeing at the threat of one, they just get a threat and they all scatter. That's a reference back to Leviticus. Because in Leviticus 26, God promised, if you obey me, five of you will chase a hundred. A hundred of you will chase ten thousand. 
And we see in this passage from Isaiah, if you don't obey me, you're scared of one. Because you don't know your holy God. The chapter goes on, verses 18 on, telling us that Yahweh will be faithful and keep His promises. Even in the middle of this, in verse 18, and highlight this, underline this, therefore the Lord or Yahweh waits to be gracious to you. And therefore He exalts Himself to show mercy to you. For Yahweh is a God of justice. Blessed are those who will wait for Him. In the middle of this, we have this amazing statement that Yahweh is waiting to be gracious to you. It's like He's looking out the window like my kids do when I'm coming home from work. And they're just waiting and all excited. And, and God's just waiting and saying, turn to me. Trust me. Trust me with your now. Trust me with your future. And see what I will do because I have grace that I'm going to keep on you. I have mercy that I'm going to give you. You'll be blessed if you wait on God. And he goes on in, in just a, a beautiful section all the way down to verse 26. I encourage you to read this to describe what God would would have for His people. People shall dwell in Zion and Jerusalem. You shall weep no more. He'll be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. As soon as He hears it, He will answer you. Is God a cruel God? No. He's a just God, but waiting for His people. And though the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teacher will not hide himself anymore but your eyes will see your teacher. He's saying, even though through tough times, God is working. He is teaching you. Jump down to verse 26, the end of that. In the day when the Lord binds up the brokenness of His people and heals the wounds inflicted by His blow. And that blow there is discipline. And He's about to let Assyria discipline His people. And then a a little over 100 years later, he's going to let Babylon come in and discipline his people. And it's a blow. But he says, I'll bind you up if you come back to me. That's the God we serve. One that is anxious for relationship with us. Wants to give us grace. Wants to give us mercy. If we will just trust him. Puritan author wrote, God's wounds cure. Sin's kisses kill. God's wounds cure. Sin's kisses kill. Yahweh is faithful. Then in verses 27 through 33, and and I think this is a bit of irony too, because Isaiah is saying, your plan was to go to Egypt. Not going to work. Let me tell you what God's plan was that He would have given you if you had asked Him. And He goes and says, Behold, the name of the Lord comes from afar, burning with His anger. And in thick rising smoke, his lips are full of fury, his tongue like a devouring fire. And he goes on to say he'll sift the nations, he'll destroy. It goes to 29. You'll have a song. You'll be celebrating when you see God working. And then in 30, 31 rather, the Assyrians will be terror stricken at the voice of the Lord. In case they miss the general descriptions of God's salvation, he says, the Assyrians will be terror stricken. I'll take care of them when he strikes with his rod. And every stroke of the appointed staff that the Lord lays on them will be to the sound of tambourines and lyres. Those are instruments used in worship. And they will worship God because they see his deliverance. 
battling with brandished arm, he will fight with them. For a burning place has long been prepared. Indeed, for the king is made ready. Its pyre made deep and wide with fire and wood in abundance. The breath of the Lord, like a stream of sulfur, kindles it. They should have trusted God. His plan was supreme. And we're going to find out that eventually King Hezekiah does trust God. And God enacts part of this against the Assyrians. The cool thing about this is God is the only one that can get the glory. They trust God works. God is glorified. If I trust in self, maybe, maybe the whole alliance with Egypt works and that saves them. Does God get the glory? No. Egypt gets the glory. A pagan nation. And God's plan was better. Let me give you an overview of the next two chapters. Chapter 31, 1-9. through nine, Their trust was tested by the Assyrians. Their trust was tested by the Assyrians. The question we have to ask is, do we believe God is capable? See, if we get to the heart of it, do I believe God is capable in the situation I'm in? Or do I need to take action to help God out a little bit? Do you believe God is capable even over the sin that you keep repeating? That you struggle with? He is. He is. And in in an amazing verse, in verse 1 there, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help. And that woe is judgment on you. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses who trust in chariots, which reminds us of Psalm 27, who trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel, the only one that can help, or consult Yahweh. He's saying you're you're trusting the wrong things. It's a test of trust. Who do you trust? Horses, chariots, those were the tanks of the time. Those could beat just about everything else. Man, if we got some good chariots, we'd win every war. Easy to trust in that. Makes sense in an earthly way. But they didn't look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. So we see again, are we asking, are we seeking His counsel? In verse 2, and yet he is wise and brings disaster. He does not call back his words, but will arise against the house of the evildoers and against the helpers of those who work iniquity. It's saying God is wise. He can bring disaster. He will fight. And then the next few verses, he's saying you've ignored God's promises already. You've ignored God's command. Now in verses 3 on, he says you're ignoring common sense. And the idea is, okay, who's stronger, some horsemen or God? the creator of all things, the created or the creator, man which is flesh and fragile and can be, boom, dead, or God who is spirit and infinite. Let's think this through, he's saying. Which one can actually help? Verse 4 is an interesting um, picture. For thus the Lord said to me, as a lion or a young lion growls over its prey, And when a band of shepherds is called out against him, he is not terrified by their shouting or daunted at their noise. So the Lord of hosts will come down to fight on Mount Zion on its hill. Like birds hovering, so the Lord of hosts will protect Jerusalem. He will protect and deliver it. He will spare and rescue it. Do you catch what he's saying there? 
I didn't the first time I read it, just so you know. In case you're reading, you're like, man, I just don't see it. It's, it's talking about, a, it's two different pictures there. The word picture in, in verse 4 is like a lion that has prey, God will protect his people. Now, most of you don't have lions, but even a cat, you, you can know this. If a cat has caught something and you try to take it away from them and they have claws, watch out. Because that cat is like... Rrr! A lion is like that. You watch at the zoo, and, and this lion will have this meat, and, and they're tearing it apart. And it's a really cool wild animal park. Um, and another lion comes, and they will defend that vigorously. That's the picture God is using of his protection of his people. I will defend them. I will fight. No one else will touch them. That's the God who wants to defend you and protect you. The second word picture there is the bird's hovering over, and it's this blanket of protection. He will protect. And he uses four words there. He'll protect, he'll deliver, he'll spare, and he'll rescue. When things come in fours, that almost always means completeness in the Bible, especially in prophetic literature. And so he's saying, God has completely got this. He is sufficient. And verses 6 through 9, so repent. And the challenge here is to see our difficulties, to see our trials as tests, as opportunities to show where our trust lies. Do I seek God or does my trust lie elsewhere? I want to end with the first part of, of chapter 32. The righteous king will rule and things will be made new. So don't get discouraged at what you see now. The righteous king will rule and things will be made new. So don't get discouraged at what you see now. And this is a beautiful section. Again, Isaiah will show the darkness of our sin and then he always shows the light of hope through God and, what that, and how that handles the darkness. Behold, a king will reign in righteousness and princess will rule in justice. Probably talking about the future kingdom of God, of which we're already part of, but we'll see in its, its fullness in the millennium and the new heaven and new earth. Each will be like a hiding place from the wind. You get four things here again. Like a hiding place from the wind, a shelter from the storm, streams of water in a dry place, shade of a great rock in a weary land. The eyes of those who see will not be closed. The ears of those who hear will give attention. The heart of the hasty will understand and know, and the tongue of the stammerers will hasten to speak distinctly. And he's saying, you'll understand, you'll see. Those that are hasty, that just try to get things done quickly and say, we've got to move and I've got to do this, I've got to do this, they'll, they'll pause and they'll understand and they'll be wise. The tongue of the stammerers will hasten to speak direct, distinctly. And he's saying here that there's going to be a renewal, first of creation, then of our, our spiritual lives, he goes on to say, there's a renewal of all things in the kingdom. And that's why we talked about the end a few weeks ago. And that when we keep the end in mind, when we know where these paths lead, that gives us hope. I, I, I always use baseball as an example. And it's a great example. You know, we have some Indians fans here. We have some Cubs fans here. But to our Cubs fans, you'd be feeling a lot better if I said, I already know who wins the World Series, and it's the Cubs. Now I don't. But if that were true, you'd be feeling a lot better, right? Because you know the end. In this case, we know the end. God provides for every need. He provides shelter. 
He quickens our heart. That's what we have to look forward to. The rest of the chapter basically is here, face the facts and change. And he addresses complacency. He addresses apathy. And he says, listen to this. This is a third go-around. Listen, let's change this. I want to end by just sort of summarizing some things. How do we think about repetitive sin? How do we handle it? And I'm not going to give you a 12-step program to handle repetitive sin today. I'm not going to give you a little buzzer that buzzes your hand every time you sin. I want to give you three things to think about that will help you this week as we think about sins we struggle with. Number one, don't let guilt keep you sinning. Don't let guilt keep you sinning. It's the idea of, I can't beat this. It's going to happen anyway. And we're just resigned to, there's no hope. One of the things that we saw at least three different times in this passage, actually four, is God saying, hope in me, I can handle this. I have a new kingdom for you. I can give you shelter now. This is what I would have done to the Assyrians now if you had trusted me. The whole of this whole section, the first 32 chapters of Isaiah, is trust God because He does, He is able to handle what's going on in your life. So don't let guilt of the repetition keep you from sinning. Understand God can defeat this. You can't. God can So remember that God rescues and forgives and He breaks the chains of those repetitive sins. But number two, and this is sort of the flip side of that, don't minimize the sin. Don't minimize the sin. I have talked with so many people that say, well, yeah, I struggle with that sin. It's just part of who I am. Yeah, the sinful fallen man part of who you are. And we minimize it and we justify it. And somehow the sins that we keep doing, we we start to think, oh, it's not so bad. It's just part of my personality. Or society might say, it's just how I'm made. That sin is sin. Even those things we struggle with. Don't explain it away. Every one of us with a natural man struggles with sin somewhere. Probably a lot of places. We can't explain it away. We need to call sin, sin. And and, and we need to understand these things are offensive to God. The things that we repeat, all sin is offensive to God. Just as not trusting Him to help us in it is offensive to God. Because God is the Holy One. The One set apart. The only One that our trust should be in. And finally, number three, The question out of the text today, go to the heart. How does this show I'm not trusting God? When I think of repetitive sin, how does this show I'm not trusting God? Maybe you ask the question, what desire in me am I filling on my own instead of letting God fill? Make sense? Maybe my issue is anger. And and, and I struggle with anger. Well, that's usually fulfilling either a desire to have what I want or a desire to be right. And so I get angry to try to get what I want or to try to be right. And that anger is coming from trusting self to fulfill those desires. See where I'm going with that? When we start to say, okay, my anger shows that I don't trust God to handle the situation. 
My anger shows I don't trust God to make things right. That I don't trust God to give me what I need instead of what I want. When you think of something like lust, it's a desire for intimacy. A God-given desire for intimacy that we are trying to fulfill by trusting self and taking shortcuts instead of the way God intended it to be in marriage. Do I trust self to fulfill that desire in my timing and in my way without the work of intimacy? Or do I trust God who has a beautiful relationship in mind? When I think of gossip, I'm dealing with the desire to be accepted, the desire to feel good about myself over other people. And so I gossip and say things I shouldn't say because that somehow meets that need. I'm trusting in self and my sin to meet that need instead of God who says, find your worth in me. You're a child of the king. Do you need more? We need to trust in the Holy One and not in all these false substitutes. I could go on with every sin that we struggle with and we can talk about meeting my own needs, trusting self versus trusting God. And we're over, so we need to end. I challenge you to be like Isaiah was before the throne in chapter 6. And he was undone. He said, woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips. Because when confronted with a holy God, our sin, whether it's repetitive, whether it's one time, our sin is exposed. And he fell on his face, woe is me. And God cleansed him. And interestingly enough, God's holiness is at play in that passage as well. Trust a holy God. With, with sins we struggle with, call them sin, be undone before God. And trust that God can work through that with you. Who do you trust this morning? Let's pray. Lord God, your word is powerful and convicting. And Lord, you've chosen to write about your people's failures because we fail too. And we fail a whole lot more than three times. Lord, help us to be people of prayer that are seeking you for our decisions, that are seeking you for our plans, that have peace because we trust in you. Help us to quit fulfilling our desires our own way. For them, it was going down to Egypt. For us, it's a whole host of other sins. Let's see them as they are, as you see them. And then experience your precious grace. Your forgiveness that you paid for on that cross. Oh Lord, when we realize the depth of our sin, we realize the depth of your grace. Thank you God for your love. In Jesus' name, amen.